With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It helps when you turn the microphone on, kid. The mic is on. I shouldn't say the mic. I should say slide the fader up to those audio heads that are in our audience. I have all sorts of people who will uh, constantly tell me, uh, you, you're clipping. I had a, uh, a British chap apparently tell me that my mic was clipping a couple weeks ago. So uh, clip, clip, clip away, my friend. Um, it is the next edition of the World Famous Chicken Chick Radio Broadcast. We are live coast to coast and boulder to boulder on that iHeartRadio and the AMFM 247.com, the tune in, the iTunes. Thank you, for Back to the Jiggy Jaguar Radio Show on the network. Okay, we are going to go to Bill Friedman, who's going to join us. And uh, he is going to join us here on our big program, and uh, I believe he is in the great city of Las Vegas, hopefully. And uh, if he's not, then I just totally screwed up and didn't hear anything that Irwin told me this morning. So, we are going to go. <laughs> We're going to go to Bill Friedman here in just a few moments. Maybe we will get Bill Friedman on the line. The always exciting Bill Friedman, who has uh, got the 30 illegal Hello? years, and I believe there is Bill Friedman. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? Pretty good, actually. Uh, we have got the fantastic... Uh, Bill Friedman with us today. He is our second guest here in our big program, and he is an amazing, amazing storyteller. He's got From 30 Illegal Years to the Strip. This book is the inside story about the leaders of uh, Prohibition's four largest gangs, and afterwards they ran elegant illegal casinos across America before they moved on to build 80% of the glamorous early Las Vegas Strip Gambling resorts from the Flamingo in 1946 to Caesar's Palace in 1966. And Bill joins us today here on the telephone. How are you, sir? Good. This book is uh, tremendous. Tell us a little bit about your writing process to bring this thing to life. Um, well, I spent a lot of years um, uh, reading over 200,000 newspapers, going over through 200,000 pages of FBI reports and interviewing uh, many hundreds of people who were key players in developing the Nevada gaming industry and many of them had oh, a huge number of them had come out of illegal gambling and most of those had come out of prohibition <laughs> and so I put all of that together, and that's why it will end up four books before it's over, uh, because there's so much data about so many people, and you've got different eras in um, uh, the economy and the marketing and the gaming control, and it takes into consideration all of these forces working together. 
Absolutely amazing. It is Bill Friedman. He's with us today here in a broadcast. Bill's career for years as a uh, Vegas casino manager has always fascinated me. And uh, so l- l- let's talk a little bit about that aspect of your colorful background. Uh, you, you you have got a, a great, great background in this uh, casino manager aspect. Tell us more, my friend. Well, um, uh when I, 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 I started as a dealer, and then I got involved in the research, and the research led to um, a course at the University of Nevada called Casino Management. It was the pioneer course in casino management in any university or college in the world, and um, they picked me to teach it. Um, the head of the hotel college told me the day he hired me, he said, we have the very best casino operators from every point of view uh, here in Las Vegas, but they know one field and nothing else. You, on the other hand, are an expert of nothing, but know a little bit about everything. (laughs) And so I taught the course twice a year for 10 years and wrote a book called Casino Management, which the New York Times said was the most expensive required reading at Cornell's University Hotel College, which was extremely highly rated. Yes. And uh, from there, I got picked up by the Summa Corporation. Uh, It was owned by Howard Hughes, the biggest privately owned company in the world. And they came to me uh, because they had a property that had been losing money for 10 years. They said, we've tried the best. Uh, we want to see if you can do something different with everything you've learned. Uh, but they laid it on the line. They said, if you don't turn it around in a reasonable time, you will be fired. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a hell of a deal there, Bill. Yes, and uh, I, I took the job, and I uh, turned it around in the third month. It, it was a very difficult two years because it had a bad reputation, and uh, it's very hard to build um, players. Uh, the oldest marketing rule in the casino business is if people enter an empty casino, they'll walk out again. They want to see players in action, and they yes. want to see players winning. Yes. And so it was a very hard two years. I did more innovations in casino marketing during those two years than anyone else. But after that, it was purely managing them because we had a role going. And after several months, they had a second property, the Silver Slipper, and it had been a long-time loser, and they gave that to me. And there's been many companies that have owned multiple casinos on the Strip, but I became the only person to manage two of them. And I turned that around, and I was there for 13 years. And the only reason why I'm not there anymore is when Howard Hughes died, there was a um, Nevada law, state law, that if there was more than one error, 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 Air, they uh, had to sell the properties uh, because they didn't want to give people who weren't experts 
and could get into nothing but arguments and damage the economy. So we knew the day he died, our time was limited, or I'd still be with them. They were a fabulous company. Absolutely amazing. Bill Friedman with us today. He joins us live here in our program. BillFriedmanAuthor.com is the official website. Go over there. Check that out. He's got all of his books over there. You can get uh, information on on Bill's history with uh, Nevada's early casinos. You can uh, see his research, uh, purchase his books. Find him on the old Twitter machine as well. And uh, he uh, joins us today here on our broadcast. One of the things that I have always, you know, from the first time that I went to Vegas for the Adult Video News Awards, every time we go out there, I love Vegas. Um, I hope someday Joe Biden gives me a house and I can move to Vegas. Uh, but uh, <laughs> why are people across the country so enamored with Las Vegas? Well, we got two different eras, and uh, and all my four histories are the earlier era till 1990. The Las Vegas casino business was purely gambling and entertainment. Um, every department in every hotel lost money except for the casino and the hotel rooms. Um, it was a complete loss leader to give the people the best gamble, the best prices, the best entertainment. And so they drew in a crowd that a huge percentage gambled. It all changed in 1990 with the Mirage opening and the beginning of the uh, mega resort era. And they decided to make money with all the departments. And while they had been very successful and made a lot of money, when all the other departments started making money, the interest in gaming went down because it became so expensive to come here and gamble. So... The largest market became the conventioneer market, the meeting market, and then the party club market. It went from the um, showrooms where they were constantly bringing in uh, new nightclub entertainers to um, the, the party uh, clubs. And so you've, it, it, it's, it's like two different places and it all depends on what your taste is and what your orientation is, which you like better. Well, it is it is a tremendous, tremendous. Bill Friedman with us today. He joins us live here on the telephone. Uh, go to his website, BillFriedmanAuthor.com, for more information. Bill's got some uh, incredible books over there, and he joins us today here on the telephone. So, um... Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your other your other projects. Um, the first third of of your of your book uh, is the history of prohibition's four biggest gangs. Tell us a little bit about this, my friend. Well, it it, it was the most unusual group of people that could have come together. Uh, this is when organized crime became big. Up until then. In the poor areas, there were professional street gangs. They made their living um, 
abusing the local people. Um, when Prohibition came, it became a huge business, and these big gangs uh, were developed. Well, the current gangs, uh, which were almost all uh, of one ethnicity, uh, they take uh, when people from another uh, country came in or another culture, they tend to want to be with people that knew their culture, might be a different language, and so the gangs that developed were all one ethnicity. These, uh, the three biggest gangs by far, were made up of seven leaders. They were very unusual because all of them were basically uh, gamblers. They wanted to be in the casino business but took advantage of this. And gamblers are different than other organized crime. All of organized crime wants to get your money, but the gamblers want to get it without hurting you. And that's why I loved the Nevada business so much. That's why I loved all of these hoodlums so much, is they were tough as nails if you threatened them, but they didn't push anybody around, and they had no interest in it. So you have these three gangs that develop, they're nonviolent. Um, they hate monopoly. They think vengeance is crazy. Uh, all the things that crime's known for. Um, uh, with vengeance, uh, they said, <laughs> you kill someone, uh, they've got brothers. You've just got more enemies. This is nuts. <laughs> and so these guys ended up, uh, they, they ran their businesses, and they were multicultural. Uh, they had, uh, every gang had several nationalities in it, which made them different, and they didn't like violence. Well, two gang wars, national gang wars broke out, and they survived and came out the winners, and all of a sudden, they're top dog in America. They're highly respected because they always uh, dealt with the truth, never pushed anyone around, and they became enormous. The second biggest gang, the um, uh, federal government, was able, they were buying legitimate liquor. Uh, there was a lot of gangs that were producing bootleg liquor, but they were bringing in the finest um, uh, liquor from all over the world, the champagnes, the wines, the everything. And two of the gangs were in New York City, which had half the wealth of America, the richest people in America, and the other one was in the Midwest, and they brought theirs in through Canada uh, across Lake Erie. Well, it came in legally, but then they had to move it. Well, the federal government on the second gang was able to find out from their suppliers that they were bringing in over 50 50 million cases a year. Holy you're talking love. about, if you divide that per day, you're talking about monster operations. All of these guys started out in poor areas, yet they had huge fleets of freighters. All the speedboats to bring them in when they hit the uh, U.S. Uh, territorial line, they'd stop dead. And from there, they'd wait till the dead of night, and they'd have 
all of these speedboats take off and try to beat the Coast Guard and the uh, pirates out there. And but they had they put together and raised the capital to do this. Now when prohibition oh and add this. Capone and Chicago were the exact opposite. He was complete monopoly, very violent, um, and but he loved these guys. And he also was multicultural. Now when the uh, prohibition comes to an end, all of these groups go into casinos. And casinos opened up across America. Uh, just like they are today. I mean, wide open. Uh, not every city had them, but major cities across America. And quite often, it wasn't the main city. It would be a small town near the big city where it put everybody to work and raised a lot of income for the little city with all these wealthy people coming in to gamble. Well, every gang in the country that was of one nationality only did gambling in their area. These four gangs spread across the country, open casinos everywhere. Uh, the uh, places in the the three big ones, they they had an upstate New York's casinos. They were in New Orleans. They were in Miami. They were in Havana. Um, uh, they were all over the Midwest. Uh, with the Midwest group, and they just spread across the country, and two people that are notorious bad guys that were two of these guys uh, that everybody I interviewed that ever dealt with them just thought the world of them, and that's Meyer Lansky and uh, Ben Siegel. They opened casinos around the country and were the first people to really start building the Strip and whenever they'd go in, they would, of course, corrupt the law enforcement and the prosecutors and pay them off, but just for one crime, and that was gambling. And once they were given the pass to open casinos, they'd call all the other major gangs and say, come on in. These guys were intelligent enough to understand that if you have one casino all by itself in an area, it's got a monopoly, but it doesn't have pizzazz. People want to be able to go from casino to casino, particularly if they're on a losing streak. So that's why these gambling centers became so popular. So just the opposite of the monopoly of organized crime they literally called up all the other big gangs and said, come on in, we've opened up the town. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Bill Friedman with us today. You can get more information, BillFriedmanAuthor.com, if you want to know what's going on with Bill Friedman. He is tremendous. Uh, the middle third of the book is about these gangsters that... Uh, Overworld political power, the winning of World War II, some terribly corrupt city and state governments, and some framing ambitious criminal prosecutors. Give, give, give us your take on this, Bill. Well, the uh, after uh, Prohibition and they went into gambling, um, a number of things happened. And one of them was 
Charlie Luciano was the most respected and revered gangster, both by the overworld and the underworld in American history. And although he was deported back to Italy before the group came to Nevada, I I feel his presence because it was his values that dominated the casino industry all those years I was in it up until that time. And it was, you know, this was this get along with everyone, bring everybody in. And he got framed to prison for life for one, a crime that never occurred, and two, uh, uh, even if it had, the prosecutor admitted to the jury he never made a penny and he wasn't involved, but he gave a nine-hour um, uh, uh, finish on on his presentation saying there isn't a crime in America he isn't behind. It made no sense. I've got all the details in my book, and everybody who testified against him uh, revoked their testimony later. Uh, they were mostly drug addicts. Uh, they, uh, uh, Meyer Lansky sent them all to clinics, got them straightened out, got their lives back together, and they uh, all were ready to appear. So he goes to prison on a total frame-up. Well, while he's in prison, Luciano is the man in America. There isn't one gangster, one banker, one person in the overworld that won't listen to this man. Well, when the Second World War broke out, it looked real bad for America for the first five months. In December of 41, Pearl Harbor was attacked. In the next four to five months, every day, a German U-boat knocked one and a half freighters out of the water or American warships that were headed to Europe to fight them. You're talking about an incredible loss of life, an incredible loss of munitions, food, etc. They were very worried about how this information was getting out, and they went to the docks in New York where all of this was coming out of, and the workers came from countries. They were mostly foreign workers. They came from countries they didn't uh, trust their government. They didn't trust the U.S. government, and nobody would cooperate with the naval intelligence. Finally, they went to the gangs that ran their unions and said, what do we do? And they all said, there isn't anyone on this dock that will not listen to Charlie Luciano. You get to Charlie Luciano, you get whatever you want. They went to Meyer Lansky, who was his close friend, and he was out and said, will you talk to him? And Lansky brought them into the prison to sit with Luciano. And they said, will you help us? And they explained what they needed, and he gave them a flat no. And they said, why won't you help us? He says, because you're losing. And when you lose, um, uh, 
Italy and France uh, and Germany are going to take over America, and they're going to kill me for helping you. So I will only help you if you promise me my name will never be involved. They gave him that promise, and with that, he called in his gang leaders. He brought in his partners, uh, Meyer Lansky, uh, Joe Adonis, and others, and he said, go to those docks, and you tell them that Charlie Luciano told you to help well, the first thing that happened is the unions, which wouldn't deal with them, gave all of the naval intelligence false identifications that let them in to everything on the docks without anyone knowing who they were. They then called meetings of everybody, and they said, um, uh, you will cooperate in every way. And what they were afraid of was, one, the information on where the ships were going, when they were going, and what route they would take. And they told everybody, you never speak of your work again. And they said, if you see anything that looks like espionage, that would be espionage, but anything that would look like sabotage, you notify us before they damage the goods here. And everybody agreed, and for miles from those docks, if you were in a bar after that, they said that if someone said anything about work, everybody in the room said, unless you want to go outside with us, you just shut up right now. And they silenced everything. And from then on, the number of attacks reduced, but they had another problem, and this probably won America the war. They needed to invade France. There was two enemies to Germany. There was England on the west, and there was Russia on the east. They needed to take out Italy and create a third one to the south and get the people away from Normandy. They had to get the Germans pulled away from Normandy or they never could have gotten in. They went to Luciano again and they said, what do we do? And he put out, the, he said, I'll put out the word. And the next morning when they showed up at their Navy intelligence offices, the building was surrounded by hundreds of people. They didn't know what they were facing. Every one of them had come to America from Italy, from Sicily, which is what they wanted to attack. They all were Sicilians, had come within the past year, so they knew everything, and they had every photo that showed anything of the homeland. And hundreds upon hundreds of people showed up, gave them thousands of pictures, described where all the reinforcements were. Then there was an associate of Luciano who had gone back to Sicily, and through the spy network they contacted him and every one of the mafia groups in Sicily recorded where everything was. So when we attacked 
Sicily, we knew where all of their military was, where all of their storage was, where all of their executive offices were, and we attacked Sicily, and in six weeks, we went through the entire country. It was the fastest fought war, the fastest moving war in history. We'd reach certain places in the road, and average people ran out, and they'd wave not there, there, and kept them going the whole way. I mean, it was a phenomenal thing. Now they get to Italy, cross over, and if you look at Italy, it isn't that much longer from one end to the other than Sicily. For two years, we never could get through Italy, but we because Germany sent so many troops there to stop us. But those troops would have been at Normandy, and they would have no chance we could have won at Normandy, and that was the end. And this whole Sicily thing, both from all the knowledge that were given by the people that had come to America and all the people that were there helping them, they moved through there. And that is how we won the war from a man who was framed and sitting in prison. Absolutely amazing. It is Bill Friedman. He's with us today here on our big program, Coast to Coast and Border to Border on iHeartRadio. Also, AMFM247.com. So, what's next for you as an author, Bill? Well, I've got... Three more books uh, on the history of Nevada gaming. This one, what happened was I wanted to do everything in normal historical writing fashion and do it chronologically. My problem was these guys were all so tied together, I didn't know how to talk about one without the other. So I wrote this book, uh, 30 Illegal Years, so that I've presented who they were, what their backgrounds were, and now the next book will be from the first time a European entered the territory, the Indian territory, Native American territory that would become Nevada through 1950. Because in 1950s when the, the strip started in 41, but yeah. in terms of the first great high rolling joint what we know of the strip today started in 50, so it takes it all through up there, through the uh, like roaring 20s with illegal casinos, uh, the uh, uh, legal casinos in the Great Depression, uh, the surviving the war years, and, uh, and that will be the next book, and I'm about halfway done with that. But I've taken another book you may be interested in when I've done it, as I wrote this next book, I, my parents were born in the first decade of the 1900s. Okay. And as I read it, I realized life was far more primitive then than um, Hollywood's ever shown it. Uh, they show automobiles way earlier than they were on the road. Uh, they have nothing but automobiles decades ahead of when half the roads were covered with horses still. And I looked and I called a dear friend um, 
I've uh, I've never heard another man say he had women mentors, but along with all of these hoods <laughs> and the politicians and the attorneys yeah. and gaming control and all these strong men I knew, I had several women in my life that were older uh, that were my mentors, not just my friends. And this woman's 18 years older, and I called her four years ago, 92 years old. I said, you know, I'm reading this. And I'm thinking back when I was a child, and tell me if it's my... Go, go ahead, keep, keep talking, though. Go ahead, my friend. If, if I'm seeing the world wrong, or yeah. it seems to me when I was young, people were old at 50 and aging yes. at 60. Yes, yes. And, I, I completely and, agree with you, my friend. I completely agree and, with you. And and I said to her, she said, you're right. And I said, but I don't understand it. Our our uh, food isn't as good because our land uh, doesn't have as good chemicals left. Yep, yep. We've got all this processed food. It makes no sense. 92 years old, she shot back at me and she said, stimulation. Well, it was like a lightning bolt. It hit me. When a man retired... When a woman had the children leave home, because very few women worked in that era, there was no radio, no telephone, no phonograph, no communication. Yeah, they yeah. sat on the couch or the porch, and they stared in the distance. And I realized how primitive life was, and so this book is how all the great inventions occurred how they were developed, because most of them, it turns out as a shock to me, never were developed like you would think, and how slowly most of them uh, uh, developed. Um, and so it takes what life was like from the late 80s up until 1950, um, the, because it is just mind-boggling, and... It's not just me, because there's a number of people that know what I'm doing, and when I talk to the old folks, they say, I remember outhouses. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is awesome. We have got Bill Friedman with us today, BillFriedmanAuthor.com. Sandra Lee coming up here in just a few moments. Uh, but before we, before we let you go for today, Bill, um, I have <laughs> you 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 study all the different things going on in Vegas and all the all the history of of, of Vegas and all the uh uh I guess you would say chicanery of uh of Las Vegas. Um one of the things that always has you know, you you were talking about the gangsters and the casinos and, and, and all this earlier. One of the things that is always um, I guess fascinated me is how the Fertitas got their hands on the Ultimate Fighting Championship back in the day and took it from something that nobody wanted to see on pay-per-view to a huge, you know, sport. It became a sport. Um, I, I don't know if you know much about the, the, the Fertitas, but these guys, they own all the station casinos there in Vegas. And one of the Fertitas was on the Nevada Athletic Commission. And Robert Merowitz, who um, 
owned the Ultimate Fighting Championship. He was trying to get sanctioning by the Nevada State Athletic Commission. And he said that if he didn't get his sanctioning, he'd have to sell the company. He'd be bankrupt. There, there, there'd be, you know, the, the sport would go away. And so the Fertitas, of course, were on the commission. One, one of the brothers was on the commission. They denied the permit, told them that, you know, they weren't going to be a sport, all this stuff. So then Merowitz gets ready to declare bankruptcy, but before he can do that, the Fertitas come in and say, can we just buy it from you? So they sell it. And then as soon as they sell it and they buy it, the very next day, it's a sport, it's regulated, and they put it in all the casinos. And now if you go to Vegas, if they have a big ultimate fighting championship, you see it all over the town. And... I have always been fascinated by that. Do you have much knowledge of that whole thing and how that kind of went down? No, see, my my study of the history ended in 1990. But okay. this is what happens. In the old days, they didn't let one company own so many casinos and control the market and control the politics. Yes, yes. And that... That's where the problems developed. It's like Howard Hughes was denied licenses after he had six casinos in the state. They yeah. said that's enough. And um, they just don't limit it anymore. And when they stopped limiting it, uh, then we got these powerhouse companies. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.